0: The human race, some kind of love and right. I'll be sliding.
2: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really pleased to have with me, for a second time, Scott Waldy. He is the president and CEO of Legend Gold Corp., previously known as North Atlantic Resources. Legend Gold is exploring for gold in Mali, that's uh, in West Africa, and the company shares trade uh, in Toronto under the symbol LGN. Uh, last I looked in the U.S., uh, over-the-counter market uh, under the company's old name symbol, that would be N-O-A-T-F. Recently, uh, the stock was trading, uh, it was trading at around 39 $0.40, cents, something like that, giving the company a market cap of about $22 million. Well, for the sake of full disclosure, I should mention that Legend Gold is a sponsor to this radio show, and I have recommended it in my newsletter, Jay Taylor's Gold Energy and Tech Stocks, in any event. Welcome, Scott. I'm really glad to have you back to turning hard times into good times. Thank you, Jay. I'm happy to be here. Really good to have you. Uh, I want you to, to convince me why I should own some shares, I guess, and I'm not sure how much convincing I need, honestly, as we were chatting a little bit before we went on the air. It is a very exciting exploration project, and I like to tell my subscribers and my listeners that it makes an awful lot of sense to diversify. This is a high-risk, high-return game, uh, the junior exploration market. When you hit, you can really hit big, and yet there's no guarantees, are there?
3: No, there are no guarantees, uh, Jay, but I think North Atlantic has got uh, – we're backstopped by a resource base already, and I mm-hmm. think that uh, our, this new drill program that we're starting that's close into a producing mine um, gives us an awful lot of uh, – is
2: defraying the risk. Quite yes. Yes, well, you have something like 600,000 ounces now, Scott, I believe, and is that a forty three one oh one or is that a historical – uh, That's a 43101
3: compliant resource mm-hmm. estimate. Mm-hmm. So we've got yeah, so off. I'm sorry, go off two blocks within that resource estimate that has not yet does not form part of the resource estimate. Pretty substantial mm-hmm. amount of drilling, uh, mm-hmm. new drilling
2: on that. And have you reported some of that uh, those drill results, or are those going to be reported shortly?
3: Those drill results came out. Um, in uh, June and and August of of last year of 2010. And we got started drilling again at at the Chikamala property in in southern Mali in December, and those results are are going to start coming out onto the news uh, any day now.
2: Oh, so possibly this week we could be looking for some drill results.
3: Uh, It's it's highly likely that we'll get that out uh, early next week.
2: Um, well, that's really interesting now that Chikamala, I think, was previously known as the FT property, right? Yes, it was. Can you tell us a little bit about um, those 600,000 ounces, are they open pitable ounces, Scott? Yes, that would be an open pit. Those things, uh, those
3: ounces are right at surface. They're open, along strike. We've got uh, parallel drill targets to the uh, the main mineralized zone. At the present time, we're drilling We've just finished drilling about 14 kilometers away where we had a discovery last spring, <clears throat> um, and the drill is moving north now towards the uh, the resource area itself. We've been busy completing our soil and, and termite mound geochemistry surveys and, and uh, getting some guys in, in one of the consulting firms here in Toronto to, to rework our airborne magnetic data for us to try and help uh, focus our drilling a little bit more. We're looking for and hoping to be drilling off a, uh, a second zone sometime in the next uh, six months.
2: Hmm. Now, you say 14 kilometers away. That's away from the from the resource, uh, the 600,000-ounce resource?
3: Yeah. The 600,000-ounce the resource is located up in the north, uh, close to the north boundary of the property. Mm-hmm. We have a discovery 14 kilometers to the south and we're working the drill rig towards the north. There's a tremendous amount of, of, uh, uh, of gold here. There's a lot of concentration of gold, and, and the trick for us is just to get into that sweet spot and find the area where it's concentrating in economic quantities.
4: Hmm.
3: And it's, it's a big property, and there's, there's well over a dozen anomalies. Every, everywhere we look, we've, we've got structure, good geology, and lots of, uh, lots of gold concentrations.
2: So you're talking about a dozen anomalies between the current resource calculation and that 14 kilometer distance away? Yes, sir. That's uh, a lot to shoot at. Then it's going to mean it's going to mean. Uh, well, I guess these are shallow targets, though, aren't they? So you can get a lot of uh, bang for your buck in the drilling uh, of, yeah, of that it's sort it's of the it's target. a target. Yes, it is. They're shallow.
3: They're shallow targets, and we've got we've we're outlining over 20,000 meters of drilling on the property at the moment. We're hoping to complete that by the end of June before the rainy season starts, and we should be pretty close to that.
2: Uh, Scott, on the 600,000 ounces uh, open pitable, would, do you have any sense of what the stripping ratio might be?
3: It would be a low stripping ratio. The mineralized zone is is over 50 meters wide. It's right at, uh, at surface, and the rocks are confident. I'd, I'd hate to, uh, to throw a number out there, but we'd expect a,
2: a, a very low ore to waste ratio. All right, and for listeners that may not be that familiar with the mining industry, when we talk about stripping ratios, what we're talking about is waste to ore rock. A lot of times, you have to move rock that is not mineral bearing, and that, of course, is, is uh, you know adds to your cost. So, if you have a low stripping ratio, then that is a favorable um, that is a favorable economic metric. Um, so, do you, what do you know about the depth of this system? Is there any potential at depth?
3: There, there is. These, these um, rocks have roots. These mineralized zones have roots. We've, we've drilled well below our resource estimate, and we're still getting the same, uh, the same style of, and of mineralization and concentration of gold. Um, for the listeners, if they, they might be familiar with some of the Canadian gold camps like Timmins or Kirkland Lake and the size of, of uh, properties that we've, we're exploring at, at Chicamala, you could put the entire Kirkland Lake camp on this in this property.
4: Mhm. Wow.
3: From Timmins all the way down to the Quebec border where there's been over 30 million ounces of gold mined. Um, we're just scratching the surface on a property in a country that's become the third largest gold producer in Africa in only 15 years of, of mm. modern mining.
2: Wow. So they do have mining, which is a, an important consideration. They have the, uh, the, the, the legal structure, the uh, regulatory structure there, I guess, to deal with mining, which is, which is important.
3: Yeah, and the business case histories are, are great. That's where IM Gold got started. And that's mm-hmm. where Grand Gold got started. And, and mm-hmm. they're both active uh, participants in the mining economy in, in Mali today.
2: Scott, I forgot to ask you what that um, grade would be on the 600,000 ounces.
3: Six thousand. The six hundred thousand ounces is grading about a gram.
2: One gram, which with today's gold prices and low stripping ratios, uh, open pit can be very profitable. Can okay, be.
3: Yeah. No. We we think it would be recoverable at a profit. Mm-hmm. What we'd like to find on the property, no, there's no doubt about it. We'd like to find a sweet spot where we we increase the grade a bit, and that would help us pay back the
2: capital for a mining plant. What can you tell us about the infrastructure of this property, um, road access, water, etc., power?
3: Well, there's, there's a power line nearby. There's, uh, there's adequate water in a major river system that runs uh, on the west side of our property. We can drive to the property in about two and a half to three hours from the capital city of Bamako. We have our own village there, and everything runs off uh, diesel gensets. Mm-hmm. We're about 75 kilometers from uh, Rand Gold Anglos Marilla Mine, which is geologically, it's an analog for what we're exploring at, at Chicamala. And they've, uh, they mine 7.5 million ounces there in mm-hmm. a very similar environment to the one that we're in.
2: Mm-hmm. What about, uh, have you done any metallurgical studies on the 600,000 ounces?
3: No, that'll be part of the uh, the uh, program on this pass. Uh, this well, we'll be drilling those holes shortly and doing some meth testing. We have done some uh, microscopic analysis, and what we see is
2: free milling gold. Also, a potentially a very favorable development in terms of the capital cost and so forth. Um, yeah, it,
3: it helps the uh, the economic metrics.
2: Yes, um, and of course, all of this will come into greater focus as the project continues to to move forward. Um how is your your? Uh, well, let me go to to another question now, because uh, basically, though, you have this is one of two very promising properties. You're I know you're excited about a second one, uh, that's called I believe it's La Consola.
3: La Consula, yes
2: and tell us about that property because i believe you're going to be doing a fair amount of drilling from that on that property very soon right
3: we uh, put out a press release a couple of days ago and we expect to start drilling there in ten days the lakampha property is fifty square kilometers attached on the southern boundary of the satiola gold mine which is an existing uh, mine run by anglo gold and i am gold in western Mali. Um a couple of the satellite deposits that they're mining today occur within a kilometer of our our northern boundary and we are we're well acquainted with the geology there we have three zones three discovery zones on our property uh, all of which have have been a focus of diamond drilling and, and RC drilling in the past and we haven't done any comprehensive exploration there since 2005 mm. And we've been watching Anglo and, and uh, IM Gold conduct their exploration work north of our boundary and develop their pits up there. Uh, and we've been able to, to learn quite a lot about our own property from what they've done, and we're ready to start drilling and expand these three zones that we have uh, on La Canfla.
2: Hmm. So there's no, obviously no resource yet coming out of that, but, but it's your understanding that the same gold-bearing uh, structure uh, trends onto your property.
3: It's yes, it's quite clear, and I think if any of the readers want to go to our website, there are some photographs of of uh, the rock on in the uh, the pits on our website.
2: Right, and that website is what Scott.
3: Uh, it's www.legendgold.com.
2: Legendgold.com. It certainly looks like a very exciting story. You have a lot of drill information. I mean, you're going to have some some drill results coming out. Fairly soon, uh, I think on uh, on your um, on your uh, Chico, um, uh, the FT property. It's known now as the Chicomalo. chikamalo Call it the tongue twister. And well, for guys like me that can't speak anything but English, it is. But uh, uh, it, again, is chikamalo Is that it? Yeah. Chicomalo. Okay. And so you're going to have some results coming out. I mean, this is what drives these little junior mining companies oh, a lot of question, times. Insert. Drilling a, a significant resource off at uh, Lake Lakeansla as well. Scott, how is your uh, your financial situation now? How much do you have money in the till to do your current drill pro- pro- program, or are you going to have to raise some more capital soon?
3: We have. We're currently fully funded for the drill program as planned. Uh, we have about four and a half million uh, warrants outstanding that are they're all in the money.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, so we expect that that will bring in some more cash mm-hmm. to
2: the to the treasury. Excellent. All right. Well, it's uh, really great to talk to you. Is there anything else you'd like to tell our listeners before we uh, before we part company this time?
3: Well, I think I think the listeners can get, look forward to uh, some exciting news releases in the next six over the course of the next six months. And I, I would tend to say that we've completed due diligence on a third property, and and we are doing due diligence on two other properties, all of them in Mallee,
2: hmm. uh,
3: and think that we'll have a pretty interesting pipeline of properties to bring to the
2: marketplace well that uh, really is an interesting company and a company that's selling it with a market cap of around 22 million dollars I think that's what really that's what really attracts me uh, the the low market capitalization the lack of recognition in the market so far for a company and for a project uh, two projects so far that that look very very promising Scott I want to thank you so much for being with us again and I uh, hope we can have you back sometime soon to keep our listeners uh, really informed about what's going on not only our listeners but yours truly as well thanks so, look forward to having you back again but folks that's all the time we have for now on this segment we're going to be right back with Amir Adnani he's the president and CEO of Uranium Energy he'll be, re- he'll be with us right after the break so don't go away
5: Great Panther Silver is a profitable primary silver producer trading on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol GPR. GPR operates two 100% owned mines in Mexico, has a solid track record of increasing production, and continues to add resources and reserves. GPR has developed an organic growth strategy that will see production increase by more than 65% over the next two years. Great Panther Silver is also generating excitement at its new discovery in Guanajuato and expanding its drill program. Look for GPR on the TSX.
6: Crocodile Gold Corp is a new gold producer with bite. With operating gold mines in the Northern Territory of Australia, Crocodile Gold produced 82,000 ounces of gold in 2010. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometres. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by.
1: Brigus Gold is a growing gold producer with expected production of about 85,000 ounces of gold this year from its Black Fox mine in the Timmins Gold District in Canada. Next door to Black Fox, Brigus has the exciting Gray Fox Pike River Gold Project. Brigus is also advancing its Gold Fields Project in Saskatchewan, Canada, and its promising exploration projects in Mexico and the Dominican Republic. All of its gold assets are in low-risk operating jurisdictions. Consider Brigus as your gold investment choice. Brigus is listed on the MX and TSX under the symbol BRD.
5: Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business.
0: Welcome to the human race, some kind of love and ride, I'll be sliding.
2: Welcome back to the second hour of Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and again, I want to thank you for listening to this show and making this the number one show on the Voice America Business Channel. I want to thank our sponsors uh, for the second hour of this show. Uh, This week they are Crocodile Gold, Gold Bullion Development, Legend Gold, uh Barkerville Gold, Great Panther Resources and Millrock Resources. Well, I'm really pleased to have with me Amir Ednani. He is the founder of Uranium Energy Corp, a company that had been and has been in the past a sponsor of this show as well. Uh, and he has been the president chief executive officer and a director of the company since uh 2005. Uh he uh Mr. Adnani, is an entrepreneur with a background in business and development, uh, business development and marketing. In 2004 he founded Blender Media. Uh, where he served as the president and director until 2006. Blender Media is a Vancouver based company that provides strategic marketing and financial communication services to public companies and investors in mineral exploration, mining, and the energy sectors. Uh, In 2005, Blender Media was named one of the fastest-growing companies in Canada by Profit Magazine. In 2001, Mr. Anani co-founded and until 2004 was a director and officer of Fort Sun Investments, uh, Inc. That's a leading strategic marketing firm providing services to small and mid-cap public companies. Uh, Amir Anani holds a bachelor's degree uh, from the University of British Columbia. Really good to have you again, Amir, with me. Thanks uh, for coming on to Turning Hard Times into Good Times.
7: Uh, Thanks for the introduction, Jay. It's great to be here.
2: Great to have you, uh, as you 've been here before, uh, as a spokesperson for uranium energy, uh, we might have get around to asking you a couple of questions about your company. But what I wanted to do is focus on the nuclear energy to markets today. Uh, this industry, of course, following the Japanese situation is uh, has been set back i think a, a bit I think I think that 's the the consensus that most people have. Uh, how do you think um the industry goes forward now uh, to what extent do you think this tragedy which seems to be a, a very high a very low probability event uh you know a, a point a, a 9.0 earthquake followed by a devastating tsunami followed by this nuclear problem uh how do you think this is going to affect or do you think it will affect long-term growth of nuclear of the nuclear power industry
7: you know jay i, I don't have to I say this, but uh, the obvious issue here that I think everyone recognizes is the human tragedy uh, in what has taken place in Japan mm-hmm. and the enormous uh, magnitude of the, the damage, the economic damage, the infrastructure damage that is, has that is taken place. And of course, mm-hmm. as you point out, it is caused by an unprecedented earthquake and tsunami, uh, really, one of the most unprecedented acts of Mother Nature, we've, we've noticed or has been recorded in, uh, in history. Uh, the death toll and um, the human tragedy of all of this uh, was not caused by nuclear power, and I think that's the lack of media coverage proportion that has existed in this whole thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, again, caused by uh, really just this un- unprecedented situation with... Uh, uh, with the earthquake, so when you put it all in perspective, uh, you know nuclear power has proven its value to society in Japan, the U.S., and elsewhere. It provides large amounts of carbon-free electricity on an around-the-clock basis, and it does it cost-effectively with the uh, lowest uh, electricity production cost of any large energy energy resource. And uh, society has benefited greatly as a result of nuclear energy in Japan and in the U.S., and it's been instrumental in the economic uh, success over the past half century. That's a long time, and that is, there's a lot of benefit, and there's a lot of broader issues to take into account here in terms of how we move forward in the 21st century meeting our energy needs. So I think it is just premature for... Uh, the media or for you know, anyone with a political agenda to try to act uh, prematurely or state things prematurely in terms of how nuclear fits into our energy mix moving forward. The reality mm-hmm. is there is no alternative to nuclear power and that there is no alternative to nuclear in the context of how nuclear can generate an enormous amount of energy that's emission-free and low-cost. Mm-hmm. And well, that's that's the end of, that's 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 the end of that. And I think you know there's there's a lot to be learned and perhaps incorporated in terms of uh, lessons learned from Japan. Uh, but you know doesn't doesn't every energy resource come with its inherent risks?
2: Mm-hmm. There's, uh, there's certainly cost involved with the, with whatever energy you use. And I know before this incident uh, we had Chernobyl, which is probably still going to stand as the worst one. Uh, this one probably worse than Three Mile Island. But, uh, you know, every energy source we use, we talk about coal, oil and gas, think of the people that die uh, in explosions that take place in coal mines and, uh, you know, so they're – up to this point in time, at least, and I think this would probably still hold true, that the nuclear industry probably was – except for, you know, for Chernobyl – was probably the safest source of energy. Uh, with fewer deaths attributed to it than than any other uh, any other energy source, would you think that's true?
7: Oh absolutely i mean there's there has been a very serious and demonstrated commitment to safe operation of nuclear energy facilities both in Japan and in the u s so the sector actually does have a very good clean um, uh, track record when it comes to uh, operating reactors safely and and also incorporating lessons learned from when issues arise into better uh, standard uh, protocols.
2: Let's talk a little bit about the, uh, the markets and how they've reacted to this. Tell, tell me about the, the price of uranium, U-308, the spot price or, or whatever price you track. Has the uh, uranium price gotten hit hard after the Japanese decline?
7: Not as hard as the uranium equities have been uh, hit with. The uranium equities, on average, are down anywhere between thirty to forty percent chemical, which is the world 's largest uranium producer is down thirty percent which is quite uh quite amazing uh, mm-hmm. but the uranium spot price is down only uh, roughly eight percent mm. and uh, the uranium term price is down only a dollar it 's down from seventy three dollars a pound to seventy two dollars a pound mm-hmm. uh, and so the commodity has uh, has has Done much better i mean immediately after the events in japan there was a lot of volatility in the spot market but it's but it's settled out and it is um it's been acting a lot more stable but there's definitely been an emotional sell-off in the uranium stocks and uh, anything to do with the nuclear industry uh, as it pertains to the equity market
2: Okay, so what would account for that? Obviously, supply and demand. And you, so you think it's mostly emotions that cause people to, to flee from the equities. Uh, but it must be the supply and demand situation is remaining pretty constant. Otherwise, you'd have had a, a, a precipitous decline. It would suggest to me that there's not a lot of speculation right now in the uh, in the uranium uh, markets.
7: Well, you're right, and <clears throat> the uranium market is really free right now of any speculative actors. It is truly driven by supply-demand fundamentals. And part of why I call this sell-off in uranium equities an emotional sell-off and an overreaction is due to the fact that when we look at the, the numbers, supply-demand numbers, before Fukushima and, and basically post-Fukushima, we notice one very important uh, similarity, which is we still have a significant uranium supply imbalance uh, to meet current reactor requirements, even post-Fukushima. And the numbers don't lie. Before Fukushima, there were 443 nuclear reactors operating in the world. And post-Fukushima, there are now 425 nuclear reactors still operating in the world safely, generating about 16% of worldwide electricity supplies. These reactors need to consume uranium and they're not, uh, their uranium consumption hasn't changed as a result of the events in Japan. The 425 nuclear reactors that are operating will represent about 175 million pounds of annual uranium consumption. And Jay, mine production is still at 130 million pounds. Mm. So at 130 million pound mine production this industry is still is not meeting the current reactor requirements post-Fukushima at 175 million pounds. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, before and after Japan, there still remains 62 nuclear reactors under construction, which basically means there's guaranteed growth in demand for uranium and in growth of nuclear capacity worldwide because those 62 reactors, their plans of you know completing and coming online haven't changed. Mm-hmm. And I'm not even talking about the over 100 nuclear reactors that are at various stages of planning and permitting. Mm -hmm. So you have a situation here where the numbers show us and tell us that there's a very active base of nuclear reactors consuming uranium. The demand for uranium has got guaranteed growth due to the fact that 62 reactors remain under construction. And mine production just simply does not meet current reactor requirements, and it has to grow to meet the growing demand. Unfortunately, as a result of the 30 to 40% haircut that uranium equities have taken, it is going to be tougher, I believe, for exploration and development companies to ramp up and be able to expand uh, mine supply of uranium. And ultimately, I think the predictability and growth for demand on uranium is a lot more stable than the supply side, because You know, relying on the equity market is going to be tough when there's this type of uh, uh, sentiment in the equity market.
2: You know you were talking about how all these reactors are still being uh, are under construction and new ones are being planned and so forth, but we certainly have seen a political response from uh, merkel in in Germany, for example, and elsewhere. the Chinese have indicated that they 're going to slow down or or at least uh, stop building them for a while. so do you think that this is going to have some sort of short term negative impact though on the industry?
7: I think at any time like this it is uh it is a wise move and, and a necessary move for regulators and for people in the industry to reexamine safety procedures, reexamine how um, uh, they could be better prepared for uh, unforeseen circumstances like this. And again, it, it, would, be, it would be really ignorant not to, not to take away lessons and uh, incorporate into better operations as a result of what's happened. What is unnecessary, though, is political rhetoric. And uh, what's happened in Germany is uh, really a political situation more than anything. There are elections in Germany. Uh, to begin with, Germany uh, was never um, really a major engine of growth in the nuclear industry. And frankly, there, there, have, there have always been anti-nuclear uh, sentiments uh, in Germany. Germany, up until last year, was talking about phasing out their nuclear reactors And uh, they've only extended them because of the fact that they don't have an alternative energy resource to replace these 17 nuclear reactors. Now, as a result of uh, what's happened in Japan, uh, the German chancellor has suspended seven of the 17 nuclear reactors for three months. And I believe believe elections are next month. So this is a short-term political knee-jerk reaction. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, And so that's number one. Number two... Uh, the rapid expansion of nuclear power remains a key element in China's five-year plan. And this is to reduce carbon emissions and promote more sustainable developments. And there have been numerous uh, uh, Chinese officials that have come out and stated this, and and, and notwithstanding the fact that even the Chinese have stated that they will study and take a look at what happened in Japan. And Figure out what best practices they can incorporate into their growing nuclear fleet. But ultimately, um, you know, this is all part of China's efforts to reduce its reliance on coal. Uh, building more nuclear plants would also be vital for reducing their dependence on imported oil, which accounts for about 55 percent of their oil supply last year. And with oil over a hundred dollars a barrel, and with China, uh, you know, more people dying in China because of the Uh, coal emissions, um, which are quite toxic and dangerous, Uh, there's just no choice but to uh, stick with uh, the capacity, the growth that they foresee for their nuclear industry. Of the 62 reactors that are under construction in the world, 27 or 50% of them are in China. (laughs) Now, so, you know, the thing thing we have to remember here is that, uh, you know, nuclear power has played, and it continues to play an essential role in worldwide power generation. But nuclear power's role is growing most rapidly in the economies of the world that are growing most rapidly. And the Fukushima uh, situation is not going to change that trend. Uh, G7 countries combined account for only 3% of all nuclear plants currently under construction, Jay.
0: Hmm.
7: Okay, so this is, this is not a story of, you know, the nuclear expansion in the world is, is not about what you and I think in the West about nuclear power's role. I mean, there's only one reactor under construction in the U.S. Mm-hmm. This is about uh, the economies of the world that are growing most rapidly. And that's China, that's Russia, that's India, that's South Korea. And these four countries alone, you know, combined represent the majority of the bulk of new reactor builds worldwide.
2: So we have uh, a tremendous need in those countries. I guess the only way they can continue to grow is to rely on nuclear. I mean if they don't rely on nuclear, they're going to have their growth um, cut back quite a bit, would you, would you suggest?
7: Well, and I just think that in any of these countries that we're, that we're talking about here, they are, there's definitely an energy policy that is uh, geared towards having an energy mix mm-hmm. and in that mix you have solar you have wind you have fossil fuels and you have nuclear and it's this energy portfolio or mix that seems to be the only viable solution moving forward in meeting the world's energy needs and Jay, just like an investment portfolio every component of that portfolio comes with its inherent risks and just look nine months ago at the BP oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, going deeper and going out farther and drilling for oil is going to have inherent risks that could be uh, enormous in its impact to the environment. And the BP oil spill recognized that, and we're very quick to forget that. Uh, you know, and, and so we can and we can go down, you know, the the, the list and 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 look at these kind of risk-reward issues. Uh, but but I think the reality is that uh, you know a balanced energy a balanced energy approach is going to require a, a, a mix and in that mix it it is just not viable not to include nuclear in that mix.
2: Uh, Amir, let's talk a little bit in the few minutes that we have remaining uh, about the supply and demand or the, the yeah the supply and demand. You talked about the global demand for. Uh, for uranium and also the amount that's coming out of, of mine uh, production, uh, and it's, it's a big shortfall. Now that shortfall has been met up until now by stockpiles from nuclear weapons, right? Uh, uh, dis, uh, discarded nuclear nuclear weapons. Is how long will that continue?
7: Jay, that uh, deal, which is the HEU agreement, still expires in 2013, and that hasn't changed. As a result of the events in Japan. And that is about 30 million pounds of uranium a year uh, that has been coming into the market in the U.S., particularly in the last 20 years, from retired Russian nuclear warheads. And in fact, what is uh, most interesting, and this bodes well for uh, my company, Uranium Energy Corp., is that despite everything that has been dominated uh, in media headlines because of reactors in Japan, the United States can still is the world's largest uranium consumer. There still are 104 nuclear reactors safely operating in the U.S., representing about 20% of electricity supply. Mm-hmm. And the U.S. is heavily, I mean heavily, dependent on foreign imports of uranium, mainly these dismantled Russian warheads. U.S. still consumes 55 million pounds of uranium annually and only produces 4 million pounds. And so ultimately, when you look at this, and this is the reason why I believe President Obama and Stephen Chu both came out after the the events in Japan and reaffirmed the administration's position in support of nuclear power and its necessity to be part of the energy mix. Mm -hmm. I think it was quite bullish for the sector at a time of um, real challenges and difficulty to have uh, a leading nuclear country like the United States and its leaders come out and uh, reaffirm their commitment and support to nuclear. Uh,
2: folks, we're going to go to break right now. We're going to be coming right back uh, with another energy expert, uh, Paul Michael Weeby. We'll be right back.
5: Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business.
6: Crocodile Gold Corp is a new gold producer with Bite with operating gold mines in the Northern Territory of Australia. Crocodile Gold produced 82,000 ounces of gold in 2010. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometres. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by.
5: North Atlantic Resources is a gold exploration company with three projects in Mali, West Africa. With successful drilling programs and new discoveries made this year, we are in an excellent position to advance our premier FT project to development. We have a 43-101 compliant resource of approximately 600,000 ounces of gold with a target to increase to over 1 million ounces. North Atlantic trades under the symbol NAC on the TSX Venture Exchange. Learn more about NAC. Go to our website at www.nac dash TSX dot com the high risk but high reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Millrock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Millrock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Peck, Ballet, Inmet, Kinross and Eldius, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Rock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. Rockerville Gold began mining operations in February of 2010 and is expecting to produce 50,000 ounces in its first full year of mining. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business.
2: Welcome back to Turning Hard Times Into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor, and I'm really uh, sorry that we lost the last uh, few sound bites with uh, Mr. Nanny because... He uh, would have talked a little bit about uh, the shortfall of uranium production in the United States. As he he did mention, there's 4 million pounds of production that uh, is coming from the United States, and we are consuming in the United States 55 million pounds of uranium a year. Where is that shortfall going to come from? Well, it has come from the Soviet Union, the uh, discarded, uh, disassembled nuclear weapons but in another year or so, that runs out, and uh, so it bodes very well, I think, for the bulls on your uh, the, the uh, uranium bulls, notwithstanding uh, the uh, the events uh, of the last week or so, or the last few weeks in Japan, that has really caused a lot of consternation, a lot of anxiety about the the uranium industry, and of course, as uh, as Amir did point out, uh, President Obama reiterated the United States move uh intention to continue to work towards more nuclear uh more more nuclear power in the future uh it, there is a tremendous trade off obviously there is risks and rewards and we talked to uh, a few weeks ago uh to uh, an energy expert uh who, who I think was as good as any that come, uh, Nicole Foss, who was on our show. We were not able to get her back this week because we thought I really wanted to get her back, but I think she's unavailable because of her expertise in nuclear safety. No doubt she is uh, is very busy uh, around the world uh, as, as a speaker. Uh, but in any event, uh, uh, Uranium Energy Corporation, which is headed by Amir at Nanny. Uh, is uh is you know is a company that will be the next producer later this year the next producer of uranium in the United States and they will be producing i believe around a million pounds or so with the potential to expand to a couple of million pounds but then you look at the demand of fifty five million pounds per year in the United States compared to Production of just a few million pounds, and you have to wonder where will the price of uranium have to go uh, to to fetch enough uranium and how will these uranium mines get put into production when it 's so difficult? The timeline uh, is is very long to put a to um, first of all to do all the work that 's required to determine the uh, the economic viability of a mine and then to get it permitted to get it funded to get it put into production. Uh, it's the fact is the United States is still a very large consumer of uranium, and uh, I, I think uh, you know once the emotions are set aside, once we start to look at the reality of the energy industry, I think that people are going to say, well, you know, maybe maybe investing in uranium mining companies might not be a bad idea. But in any event, I'm glad to know that uh, our next guest, Paul Michael Wibby, is with us. He just joined us now online. So, uh, just a, a brief introduction to Paul Michael, who's been with us before. He is the president and founder of G West LLC. That's Global Water and Energy Strategy Team. Uh, it's a Western. It's a Washington-based consulting firm specializing in geopolitics of strategic resources such as oil and gas and water. Since the establishment of G. West in the late 2002, Mr. Wibby has provided in-person briefings on energy and energy-related issues to the heads of state of Nigeria, Ecuador, Congo, Brazzaville, uh, the Sao Tome and the Principe, uh, and he has also briefed senior congressional administration policy advisors and officials at the state department the commerce department defense and energy uh... mister Wibby has written numerous articles and studies and has testified to the U.S. Congress, uh, and he has uh, uh, recently written a book called The Rise of the New World Order, uh, which is a, a, a very, very interesting read, and we talked about that book before. No doubt we'll, uh, we'll ask Paul uh, Michael uh, some things about that book and, and uh, whether he would make any changes uh, based on recent events. Well, in any event, uh, I'm really pleased, Paul Michael, to have you with us again. Welcome to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Well, thank you, Jay. Good to be with you. It's terrific to have you here. Uh, Your book is titled The Rise of the New Oil Order. Uh, Mm -hmm. Can you briefly tell us about the new oil order? Uh, Has it begun to take shape um, since you've written it, or has it been in process, and and if so, how do you see it changing from the existing order?
4: Well, you know, this particular book was uh, published in 2009, and really it was a a culmination of a lot of uh, discussion I had with uh, individuals and uh, institutions over the last several years um, uh, as it pertains to the changes in the energy sector and specifically oil and other hydrocarbons. And um, I've been making the case for uh, several years, indeed, that um, we no longer have a sort of static, uh, linear Uh, oil sector, but rather it's a very dynamic one, it's multidimensional, it's really very exciting, there's all different types of oil, and of course petroleum, which includes natural gas, hydrocarbons like coal, because there are now new technologies coming to the fore. And these technologies are changing the very nature of that sector, and it's becoming much more sophisticated. Uh, much more nuanced in terms of the investment opportunities that are out there. And we see it at play, and the whole premise of the book uh, is that we would see these changes um, beginning to take hold, uh, even at the time of the writing of the book. And we have some very vivid examples that validate, I believe, the entire premise of the new oil order. And uh, I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with the changes in uh, the natural gas sector. And Mm -hmm. what we have seen is, as a consequence of new and proven technologies like fracturing and and horizontal drilling, we see new natural gas plays throughout the United States in -hmm. places like New York State and Pennsylvania and West Virginia uh, and so forth. And an abundance of natural gas supply uh, domestically, which has reduced... Price of natural gas as um, a commodity was from $14 to about four now, and uh, and we can see this replicated potentially with oil shale. Now this new natural gas play is from natural gas uh, shale or gas shale, and we could see a replication of the success of massive new supplies of natural gas from gas shale replicated with oil shale deposits also here in the United States, centered in the um, Green River Formation at the trisection of uh, Utah, Colorado, and Wyoming. So this new oil order is coming into play. It's already having an impact, as we see with natural gas supply and natural gas prices. And it uh, also uh, uh, extends to offshore deep drilling, Uh, And we see real, real success in that unconventional uh, 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 development of oil supplies in places like Brazil and offshore West Africa and offshore Arctic in the Russian areas of uh, the Arctic Ocean. So the bottom line is, uh, yes, we have very significant supplies of petroleum all around the world, and supply is not the problem, and it is a very, very powerful counterweight or counterargument to the whole peak oil theory, and it's within this complex of developments that, uh, you know, I wrote the book, and I believe uh, the book has been validated as a consequence of what we have seen develop these last several years.
2: Okay, so what you're basically saying that there's no reason to worry about a shortage of 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 traditional uh, uh, sources of energy, oil and gas. Uh, So we just had, we just heard from Amir Adnani, uh, who is an executive of the Uranium Energy Corporation, which is uh, figures to be the next producer of uranium in the United States. Let's talk about uh, the Japanese situation, the the recent problems in Japan. How do you think that will affect uh, the nuclear industry? And and do you believe it's essential, as Amir does, uh, that nuclear energy remain in a mix, a global mix of energy, uh, uh, of meeting energy needs?
4: Well, I would hope so. Uh, I'm not an advocate for the nuclear industry in the manner I'm an advocate for uh, unconventional. Uh, petroleum Mm sources, but nor am I uh, anti-nuclear. However, there is a differentiating element here between nuclear and hydrocarbons. And it's uh, a very simple one. You know, I was watching a movie, a favorite movie of mine, uh, a little while ago, Once Upon a Time in the West with Henry Fonda and Charles Bronson, that movie was made almost 40 years ago but you know the movie played well because it stood the test of time Mm -hmm. similarly with nuclear power plants as opposed to uranium as an energy source nuclear power plants have not yet stood the test of time uh, relative to oil or natural gas or coal and this is what I think uh, we're going to be uh, dealing with in the fallout of uh, uh, the uh, Japanese nuclear uh, disaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to have to rethink these machines. These nuclear power plants are machines. And mm-hmm. like all machines, they have a lifespan. And after that lifespan, uh, wear and tear begins to set in. Malfunctions uh, will, uh, will happen no matter uh, uh, what uh, precautions are taken. And uh, you look at the Japanese situation, and it's really revealing to, to a layman like myself to recognize that the building itself, the containment vessel itself, the cooling rods, even the water that is used with the cooling rods, and other components of the nuclear power plant are all in and of themselves the critical components to the efficient functioning of that machine, the nuclear power plant. And as a consequence, any sort of deficiency or malfunction and any one of these critical components in that supply chain of energy can lead to a very high risk and or disastrous situation. Um, and we, we're going to have to rethink that. And that's what the Germans are doing now. That's what the Chinese are doing. That's what the French and the Charcosi, a couple of days ago are proposing. A total rethink on the uh, 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 overall uh, safety uh, of these machines. And I hope, I hope we, can, we can address that successfully, because I do think uh, nuclear is a wonderful energy source, but... Uh, we're not dealing solely with the the, the the fuel as such, as in the case of hydrocarbons. We're dealing with a complex series of components and a functional mechanism that will, after a certain period of time, indeed face some sort of uh, uh, maintenance problem, however minor it may be. Mm-hmm. And What I think I've learned from this episode is, and when it comes to nuclear power plants, there is nothing minor. When there is a, uh, a breakdown.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, well, a Three Mile Island seems minor compared to this and certainly Chernobyl, but uh, you're t- t- um, standing the test of time is what you're talking about here now. How old are the nuclear plants? Not many have been built in recent years in the U.S. How old are they and how soon do they have to be mothballed?
4: My understanding is that these, these uh, plants would have a lifespan of approximately 40 years. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I may be wrong about that, but uh, I think uh, there's a great deal of hesitancy here in the United States to, uh, to mop all these plants mm-hmm. because we don't have any real alternatives in terms of producing the amount of electricity that we currently need. And that, in of itself, uh, you know, leads one to the other problems facing... You know, coal-fired or natural gas uh, power plants that need to be built, the expense involved, the new transmission uh, uh, infrastructure that is required. Uh, there's a whole set of issues here that are interrelated. And, you know, I've heard some very disturbing talk about the Diablo Canyon uh, nuclear power plant in California that is mm-hmm. built on a uh, seismic fault and that it, it is an aged... Uh, uh, mechanism, and uh, you know it—it's suffering uh, 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 internal uh, uh, problems of one form or another, and I'm somewhat fearful that you know we're going to have uh, 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 an, an accident with one of our power plants here in the U.S. simply mm-hmm. because uh, we're not committed as the French are, mm-hmm. giving uh, the nuclear industry here. A, uh, a full uh, standing as a national priority in terms of our uh, energy policy. What the French do, of course, is that they, they, they uh, take an, a mindset and they take a policy approach that treats uh, the nuclear industry as a state-owned enterprise of high prestige value with uh, export earnings capacity. So the nuclear industry in France is a sacred trust, if you will, mm-hmm. and I very, very well in maintaining uh, their power plants. Uh, I don't think we treat our nuclear industry in the same way, unfortunately, mm-hmm. and I'm not sure we can ever do that, simply because of the difference in the economic and uh, uh, domestic political cultures. Mm-hmm. So having said that, uh, I, I think no matter what the private corporations here that own these power plants do, no matter what precautions they take, no matter how well-intended they are, uh, I do think that you know we're running some serious risks with some of these power plants that are you know over the age limit as it were in terms of uh, their ability to function uh, mm-hmm. cost effectively and efficiently.
2: Right. So what you're saying is you believe that it it needs to be more of a nationalized effort. Uh, Whereas uh, the philosophy, my personal philosophy, my philosophy, and the philosophy, I think, of this radio show in general is laissez-faire, or limited government. What you're suggesting, if you're going to have an industry like this uh, that has all of these risks, you better, you better be sure that, uh, that somebody is addressing um, with all the resources uh, available – addressing the risks and making sure that you don't have these disastrous uh, events take place so i mean if we're looking at 40 years i would guess that 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 we're running up close to the edge of the of the lifetime of a lot of our nuclear plants in the u.s
4: well that's right and 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 you framed it very well jay and um really the alternative alternative is not to have nuclear power plants if you cannot Give the nuclear industry here uh, in the United States that sort of uh, state support and supervision, then better not to have any power plants. And and what I would use here to justify that sort of you know zero sum game is to put the following question forward to your audience, uh, which is: uh, Would you would one rather have uh, the BP oil spill or? a Japan-type of nuclear accident here in the United States. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, the... the
2: well, certainly for the people that lived in the Gulf, it was it was a, a pretty bad event. But uh, I guess certainly not as frightening as as what were what might the people in Japan or close to the uh, to the power plants might be experiencing. Well, that's the that's nuclear. I know it's not your primary focus, and of course, energy is much much bigger than nuclear. Although nuclear has, as as Amir pointed out, twenty percent of our electricity demand, our t- electricity supply in the U.S. comes from nuclear. So it would be obviously a very devastating setback if we closed ba- down all of our nuclear plants in the US uh but you really take a, a much more optimistic view of energy in general as you were saying earlier on there's new technologies that are freeing up uh that are freeing up uh oil and gas supplies um in uh, so I'd like to exp- uh, explore some of those uh but first before we get to those another potential problem area I think that you see is the oil sands. And you're not as bullish on the oil sands as I took it. You you might have been when we first talked to you. I remember uh, when we first talked to you, you talked about some new technologies in the oil sands uh, industry that were going to reduce energy inputs, were going to be less uh, less environmentally problematic. But you, in talking to you yesterday, I guess it was, we were chatting a little bit about today's show, you suggested that uh, maybe the case for the oil sands, the Canadian oil sands, isn't as bullish as it was before. Would you care to talk about that?
4: Well, that's a very interesting subject, and uh, I certainly do want to talk about that. Would you, Jay, appreciate it? Um, I think you know we uh, are seeing some disturbing signals coming out of the oil sands uh, sector and this does not have so much to do with the resource itself or even the technologies that are being applied to the resource, which are really very, very good and effective technologies. It has more to do with sort of the political and management uh, uh, levels uh, that oversee the development and growth of the oil sands, which is a massive resource in Canada. And uh, what we've seen in the last, a few weeks is, is a very interesting set of developments. First of all, the massive Keystone XL pipeline, which is a 7 or $8 billion project uh, uh, under the uh, uh, ownership of TransCanada Pipe, uh, this pipeline was to have been approved by the State Department some months ago and uh, the pipeline uh, is intended to bring at least half a million barrels per day of oil sands crude down to the Gulf Coast refineries in Texas and Louisiana. And this, of course, would hasten the development and growth of the oil sands up in Alberta, Canada. And what's happened is uh, due to very intense and well-coordinated uh... opposition by a number of groups uh... many of which are environmental organizations uh... like the sierra club and greenpeace uh... the state department uh, deferred their decision and now public hearings will be held over the next several weeks to uh... allow opponents of the pipeline to express their views and uh... If they're successful in presenting their arguments, this pipeline could be delayed further and essentially killed. Now, if that were to be the case, then I think this would uh, undermine the viability of uh, oil sands uh, growth and undermine further investment in the oil sands because the primary market, obviously, for Canadian heavy crude, is the United States, and these Gulf Coast markets, and the refineries on the Gulf Coast, rather, are essential to, you know, to propel the expansion of the oil sands. And the lobbying effort led by TransCanada on behalf of their own pipeline, Keystone, I think, was a disaster. I think they totally miscalculated, mismanaged their lobbying efforts here in Washington. And uh, as a consequence, uh, they've laid the foundation of high-risk uh, assessments as regards the viability of the oil sands, and also place the, uh, <laughs> the uh, uh, Alberta economy uh, at, at some significant risk. Now, we're some months away before State Department is to issue their findings, however, Uh, given the very, very professional, very competent lobbying effort by the opposition, which included, I might add, the lead editorial in the Sunday New York Times, uh, which came out with a very strong argument against Keystone and uh, uh, thereby the oil sands as a whole. I think um, the opposition is gaining traction. And uh, to further uh validate that statement one of the biggest consumers in, of uh, oil sands crude here in the United States is the coke uh industries refinery in uh, Wisconsin which i think consumes upwards of 200,000 barrels a day of oil sands crude from Alberta and uh, coke has a vested interest obviously in the building of the Keystone Pipeline down to Texas, Louisiana. Mm-hmm. Actually, the, uh, the Keystone Industries has just announced that they've uh, started a lobbying effort in Alberta, Canada to protect their interests. Mm-hmm. So this is really, uh, I think, a very, very interesting development whereby you know, one of the largest uh, uh, industries in the energy sector in the United States, coke industry, has basically sent a signal that they've lost confidence in the ability of um, the industry in Alberta and possibly the Alberta government itself to uh, properly manage uh, this pipeline. And uh, I think we'll see further developments along these lines, which... Uh, which uh, could undermine, I said could undermine, the whole uh, oil sands project in Alberta. Um, Now, that would be a tremendous loss, I think. But uh, the market is changing radically. As I Mm -hmm. mentioned at the beginning of the Mm
3: -hmm. program,
4: there's an abundance of supply worldwide. President Obama, in the midst of the Libyan crisis, uh, traveled to Brazil about 10 days ago,
2: Okay, Paul Michael, we're going to have to take a break right now and when we hold that thought when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, the abundance of supply from various places around the world and new technologies uh, that can meet the surging demand of a growing uh, middle class in much of the world. So uh, folks, don't go away. We're going to be right back with Paul Michael Wiebe after the commercial break.
5: Great Panther Silver is a profitable primary silver producer trading on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol GPR. GPR operates two 100% owned mines in Mexico, has a solid track record of increasing production, and continues to add resources and reserves. GPR has developed an organic growth strategy that will see production increase by more than 65% over the next two years. Great Panther Silver is also generating excitement at its new discovery in Guanajuato and expanding its drill program. Look for GPR on the TSX.
6: Crocodile Gold Corp is a new gold producer with bite. With operating gold mines in the Northern Territory of Australia, Crocodile Gold produced 82,000 ounces of gold in 2010. Crocodile Gold has significant exploration upside on its expansive land package of 2,500 square kilometres. Please visit our website at www.crocgold.com for more information. Don't let this snappy opportunity pass by. Want to know more
8: about how you can turn financial losses from the most devastating stock market and economic decline since the 1930s into wealth and prosperity? A successful strategy for dealing with adversity requires a proper diagnosis of the causes and solutions to an underlying problem. By applying rarely taught Austrian economic theories to policies implemented by our policymakers. Jay Taylor has been able to quadruple the value of his model portfolio since 2000, the stock market has been in the worst bear market in decades. At MiningStocks.com, Jay and his associates provide a framework for turning the pains of the current bear market and recession into investment gains. Jay is a frequent radio and TV guest and speaker at investment conferences where he shares his highly profitable Austrian economic insights at a time when most people are seeing their 401ks become 201ks or worse. He is available to share his rare profit-making insights via radio TV and public speaking engagements. To profit from Jay's insights, call 718-457-1426 or visit miningstocks.com to subscribe to his profitable newsletters.